Ruth 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The, one of the, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if nothing but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, um, Advent begins this week, and for the next four weeks, we'll celebrate Advent together. And uh, Advent, as I mentioned also, means arrival or coming. Advent is about waiting. It's about waiting and, and hoping. That's why Advent is actually hard. Advent's actually really ironic because this is the time of the year where we are the most busy oftentimes, where we're the most rushed, the least patient, 
and the most frazzled. But Advent is a season in which God reminds us of the importance of waiting, of waiting on God to arrive. That's what this story of Ruth is about. Ruth is about waiting on God. Ruth is about waiting on God. Ugh. Waiting on God. Uh, we're terrible at waiting, which is why Advent can be a challenge for us. Uh, John Ortberg, a Christian author, uh, I read from him this week, and he wrote that there needs to be a new spiritual discipline of slowing and waiting. And in this spiritual discipline of slowing and waiting, Christians will cultivate patience, he says, by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in a position where we simply have to wait. Doesn't that sound terrible? I mean, honestly, that sounds really, really hard. But I read that this week and I thought, okay, I'm going to try it. And so I got into my car. I had to make a run to HEB and get a couple of things for Thanksgiving. And here's what I did. On the way to HEB, I drove the speed limit. You should clap for that. That's that's rare. Uh, I drove the speed limit the whole way. Uh, I came to a complete stop at every single stop sign. And uh, once I got to HEB and got all of my goods, I deliberately chose the longest checkout line. And I got in that line and I waited. And while I was waiting, I didn't get on my phone. I kept my phone on silent in my back pocket and just sat there and stared at Us Weekly and tried to pray, although Us Weekly was hard. to make. I didn't want to pray after reading that and, and got in line. And then I went home and I did the same thing. I stopped at every stop sign. I drove the speed limit. I tried to just cultivate slowing down. I tried to cultivate a spirit of waiting. I, I did it once, once. And it was hard. Um, and, you know, it's essential for us, however, to learn to live in a, in a place of waiting, I think that's essential. It's essential for us to learn how to hope in the midst of busy lives if we're going to live whole and spiritually attuned lives. And I really think that the story of Ruth can help us in the waiting. It can help us in Advent. This is a story that is a part of the larger narrative of the Old Testament. We have no idea who the author of Ruth is. It's ostensibly someone that was writing much, much later to help people understand the story of King David because Ruth is King David's great-grandmother. Despite the little that we know about the background of the story, it's really one of the great literary masterpieces. One of the great literary masterpieces of the Bible. It is just a beautiful, unbelievably well-written story. It's a great love story between Ruth and Boaz, whom we will meet next week. But even more than that, Ruth is a story about hope. It's a story about faithfulness. It's about Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi. It's about Boaz's faithfulness to Ruth. And it's about God's faithfulness, really. God's faithfulness to us in the middle of our waiting. It's a story about waiting on God to keep his promises and seeing that he does. So this morning, we're going to look at Ruth 1. I want to summarize it for you with one simple sentence. Here's the point. God is gracious to broken and bitter people. That's what Ruth 1 is about. God is gracious to broken and bitter people. There's a lot of traveling back and forth in this story. And so we're going to see three points, three roads. The road to brokenness, the road to bitterness, and the road to grace. First, the road to brokenness. Those first five verses of the book give us the setting. Notice that the author says in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this story, Ruth, takes place in the time period of the judges. What was that time period like? 
Well, you only have to turn back in your Bible one page to the very end of the book of Judges where we read Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Judges is a dark blot on the map of Israel's history. It was a dark time for Israel. It was a time when people were not, by and large, seeking the Lord. If you think of judges in terms of like a landscape that you would see in a painting, it's not like a vista with mountains in the background. It's not a prairie in the spring. It's like Mordor, right? It's desert. It's wilderness. It's a wasteland, judges is. It's a time when God had largely been forgotten by his people. And as if to specify that point, the author introduces us to this man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. Um, We read that Elimelech was from Bethlehem, which is, by the way, ironic. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's like the Costco of ancient Israel, and yet it's a famine. There's no food in the house of food. So it's a bad time. And we read about Elimelech and Naomi living in the middle of a famine, and Elimelech leaving Israel to go and live in the country of Moab. Now, these introductory verses, they're not just sort of setting the stage for the rest of the story. These verses really are a theological introduction, a theological introduction to the book. First of all, the name Elimelech means God is my king. Names in the Old Testament are highly significant. Elimelech means God is my king. This is a man who his very name means he was called to be faithful, faithful to God. Now, what would that faithful service have looked like for Elimelech? Well, it would have looked like him repenting of his sin and turning back to God and asking God to heal their land. Because in the Old Testament, famines aren't just, you know, meteorological events. Famines are a theological judgment. A theological judgment from God against Israel for turning away from God and worshiping idols and forgetting the God who brought them up out of Egypt. And so for Elimelech to be Elimelech, for Elimelech to be faithful, for him to live as if God is his king, the thing for him to do was to ask God to forgive them for their sin, to ask God to heal them and their land. That's what God is calling Elimelech to do. But what does Elimelech do instead? We see that he leaves and he chooses to go to Moab. You know, this is, this is a crossroads, a crossroads in Elimelech's life. All of us face significant crossroads in our lives all the time. Crossroads where we can either choose to turn to God and trust God to provide, or we can choose to search for greener fields. Here, Elimelech chooses to literally search for greener fields. In Moab, he chooses to go. And you've got to see, this isn't just like a decision of upward mobility. This isn't just common sense, although Elimelech might have thought of it in that way. This was a decision not to trust God. This was a decision not to turn to God, but rather to take, not the road less traveled, sadly, but the road more traveled. Of all places, Moab is a bad place for Elimelech and Naomi to choose to go. Moab was formed as a nation through the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters in Genesis 19. So page one of the History of Moab book starts there. Not a great place to start your nation. 
uh, which goes without saying. Moab's also the nation that refuses to allow Israel to pass through on their way to the promised land in the book of Numbers. Remember the story of Balaam and Balaam's donkey. That's Moab. Moab also oppresses and enslaves the Israelites early in the book of Judges through uh, the evil big fat king Eglon. Great story, by the way, to read this afternoon. If you have boys, it's a great story for boys to read. Judges chapter 3. So think about it this way. Um, Elimelech is leaving God's country, Israel, for the literal greener grass of Moab. And the author wants us to see this as a decision of faithlessness, not of faithfulness. And this decision has huge consequences for everyone involved. The point is, Elimelech leads his family on the road to nowhere. We've heard about bridges to nowhere. This is a road to nowhere. It's a road to brokenness. Look at what happened. Verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. His two sons take Moabite wives, but the sons also die. After 10 years of living in Moab, and furthermore, the two wives, Orpah and Ruth, have no children, which is as good as saying that they were barren. Now, in the Old Testament, two of the great indicators, oftentimes, of God's judgments is death and barrenness. And we see both of those here. The point is that this family has taken the road to brokenness. They've taken the road to emptiness. They've taken the road to death. They've left God. They've left God and sought their own way, and it has not gone well for them. And so by the end of verse 5, we see Naomi, this aging widow, alone with her two foreigner Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. She's She's a stranger. Naomi's a stranger in a strange land. She's an immigrant. She's defenseless. She's helpless. And she's facing another turning point in her life. I mean, I'm sure that we can understand this if we apply our own modern sensibilities and stories to this story. Imagine an immigrant family traveling through Mexico, a perilous journey in and of itself, and crossing our southern border to enter the United States for a land of hope, a land where they're hoping for a life of flourishing. But on the way, the husband dies and the older sons die, and the woman finds herself alone in the United States on the southern border with no job, no family, no prospects for gaining either of those, and really no hope. That's exactly where Naomi's at here. And so she decides to get back on the road, to hit the dusty trail again. But this time she's going back home, back to Israel, because she has no other choice. So first five verses of Ruth start pretty Sat on a pretty sour note for us. And, and really, what you need to understand is that these verses aren't just telling you a very, very old story. They're doing what the Bible always does through stories, and that is they are mirroring, mirroring our own lives. These verses mirror your life, and they mirror my life in a powerful way. The book of Ruth addresses people who really are just like Elimelech and Naomi. People like you. People like me. How? We often, like Elimelech and like Naomi, believe that the grass will be greener for us on the Moabite side of the fence. Like Elimelech and like Naomi, we often, we often exhibit a fundamental lack of trust 
in the goodness of God. We question if God's way really is the best way for us, don't we? And that especially happens when things don't seem to be going well in our lives, when our circumstances are stacked against us. And so I wonder this morning, as we thousands of years after this story sit here and read the story, I wonder in what areas of your life you're right now living like Elimelech and like Naomi. In what areas of your life are you right now tempted to question the goodness of God to you? To question God's plan and if his plan for you is the right plan. Maybe you're unhappy in your work and you're beginning to question if God really knows what he's doing. Maybe you're wanting to have children and you're having trouble and you're beginning to question if God is in fact good to you. Maybe you're just getting a little bit older in life and the life that you hoped for, the life that you hoped for just isn't panning out. You can begin to question, is God really for me? Ruth teaches us, Ruth teaches us that when we begin to question if God is really for us, we're faced with a crossroads just like Naomi and just like Elimelech. We're faced with two options, two pathways, when we're forced to wait on God's goodness. There's the path of ongoing faith, even in struggle, or there's the path of walking away to Moab, walking away to what we think will be best for us. And this story teaches us that that path, the second option, is the path to brokenness, to walk away from God's way. To walk away from God's way when we struggle to trust him is, according to this story, to walk into the arms of death. It's to walk into broken lives. It's to walk into broken hearts. That's what God taught Naomi. And that's what God is intending to teach you and to teach me as well. However, at this point, Naomi doesn't get it yet. In fact, instead of taking the road back to faith, Naomi sets off on the road to bitterness. Let's look at that second. Naomi goes back to Bethlehem with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She has to go back because no one in Moab is going to take care of her. And so she goes back to her own people. And while the women are on the road back, they begin to have conversations about the what and the why of their futures. And Naomi urges the ladies, you'll see in verse 11 there, to stay in Moab. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why would you want to go with me? She's saying here, there's no chance you're going to meet a man and marry a man in Israel. It's much, much more likely for you to meet a man and therefore in the ancient culture be protected and be safe and secure when you're back with your families in Moab. Hopefully there, she's thinking, you can find husbands and bear children. Ruth's saying, I mean, Naomi's saying, I'm as good as dead already. I'm too old to get married and to bear sons for you again. Just let me go back by myself and die alone in my own country. You can sense, can't you, the the hopelessness in Naomi throughout these conversations. And I think that you can also see Naomi's festering bitterness. Naomi's angry. Naomi is bitter about the way her life has gone, and she's also fairly certain who is to blame. Look in verse 13. It's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that who? The hand of the Lord. 
the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, initially, both of her daughters-in-law, verse 10, refused to leave. No, we're going to go back with you and your people. But then Orpah, in verse 14, agrees to return to Moab. Ruth, however, stays with Naomi. And so they travel back. They get back to Bethlehem. And in verse 19, they cause quite a, a stir. And here, the status of Naomi's heart is made abundantly clear. Look at what she says there. The women of the city say, is this Naomi? Has she come back? And Naomi replies, verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly, bitterly with me. I went away full, not true by the way. She was running away from God, she wasn't actually full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? Naomi might be back in God's country physically, but she has by no means returned to him with a contrite heart. She's far away spiritually. She's not come back from Moab at all on the inside. She names herself bitter. I mean, think about that with me. Imagine if you started naming yourself after your own besetting sins. I come home from work one day and the kids say, hey, dad. I say, don't don't call me dad. Call me angry. I'm angry now. That's what I want you to call me. That's a pretty clear sign of where one's heart is. That word, bitter, bitter, it's got quite a history in the story of Israel. In Exodus, right after God delivers the people of Israel out of bondage to Egypt, what did they start doing? Complaining, whining almost immediately. We wish we could go back into slavery. At least there we had more than this stinky, nasty honey bread raining down from heaven literally to eat. Why did you deliver us, God? They want water and God provides water for them, but they think the water is bitter. And so in Exodus 15, they named that place Mara, which means bitter. The road to brokenness we're seeing here. Living a life of spiritual isolation from God, which Elimelech and Naomi had been doing for a decade or more, in a far-off land spiritually, that life can often lead us to bitterness. It can often lead us to bitterness. So what is bitterness? What is bitterness? Bitterness is a feeling of anger or disappointment at being treated unfairly. Bitterness is kind of like resentment, but it's like resentment specifically directed vertically. Resentment directed Godwards. It's also kind of like anger, but it's one step past anger. It's kind of like anger plus helplessness. Anger plus helplessness equals bitterness. Tim Keller says that bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. Bitterness is believing that God got it wrong. And that's where Naomi is. Naomi looks around at her life and she sees that it is a desert. It's a wasteland. It's not at all what she dreamed of. It's not at all what she imagined. And so she says, call me Mara. God did this to me. God brought calamity on me. God got it wrong. And the Holy Spirit asks a question of every one of us through this text and through Naomi's complaint. How are you going to respond to the brokenness of the world and to the brokenness of your life? Because you are going to encounter it. 
You are going to encounter brokenness in your life, and you are going to encounter brokenness in your world. How are you going to respond to it? Some of us are tempted, and some of us are living in bitterness, resentment towards God, believing that he got it wrong. Now, it's one thing to lament. It's one thing to lament the pain and the hurt in your life. That's an appropriate reaction. Lament is saying, with faith, God, how long? Bitterness is saying, without faith, God, how long? God, why? Which is not appropriate. To lament is appropriate. To become embittered is perilous. Are you bitter? Are you bitter? And if you are, how do you know? How can you self-diagnose? Well, one way you might know is if you don't love to be with God. If you don't love to be with God in his presence, spending time with him, if there's a coldness, a dryness, a, a distance in your relationship, it's not inherently a sign of bitterness, but it very well might be. And that especially will happen when hard things are happening in your life. Uh, In the middle of brokenness, the bitter run away from God and blame him instead of running to him as a refuge. A second related way to know is that you don't want to submit to God's word over your life. And you don't want to submit to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're not in a place where you can listen to his correction. Have any of you ever had conversations with people where you start the talk and about five minutes in you think, this person has no interest in listening. (laughs) This person has no interest in hearing anything I have to say. And so for the next, you know, 45 minutes, I'm just going to have to resign myself to sitting here and taking it from them. They're not in a place where they can hear. That often happens in life. It often happens in pastoral ministry. And it's often a sign of bitterness encroaching upon our hearts. Are you bitter? Really, it all comes down to the question of why. How are you answering the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Either you answer, uh, to put it somewhat simply, by believing that God got it wrong and is against you, or you answer by believing that God is using this for his purposes, for purposes that you can't yet see, but that you know are good. Bitterness is a dangerous thing. That's why the author of Hebrews warns us about it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. The author writes, see to it. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as slaves. No. Sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is the answer to bitterness? If bitterness is encroaching on your heart, if it's festering up in your life, like it was in Naomi's life, how can we move past it? How can we experience what the author of Hebrews writes about and yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness? That sounds good. (laughs) That sounds a lot better than bitterness. So how do we get there? Well, Ruth provides an answer. Ruth provides an answer. The road to bitterness for Naomi is actually, although she doesn't know it at the time, also the road to grace. Let's look at that last. The road to grace here, uh, the love of God, is seen in the response of Ruth. 
the response of Ruth to Naomi. Uh, We blew by it quickly just a minute ago. But did you notice that Ruth won't leave Naomi? In fact, verse 14 says, Ruth clung to her. Very important verb. He clung to her. And it makes complete sense, by the way, for Ruth to go back to Moab. I mean, Naomi, I mean, Orpah makes the logical decision. She listens to Naomi's advice. And so she goes back. But Ruth stays with Naomi. And then she gives what I think is one of the just most intoxicating and beautiful lines of faithfulness in the entire Bible. Look at what she says. Verse 16. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth pledges herself to Naomi. Ruth covenants herself to Naomi. Notice there, each promise she makes increases in a crescendo of intensity. I'm going with you. I'm living with you. My people are now your people. Your God is now my God. And then in verse 17, she even says, I'm dying with you. Bury me right next to your dead bones, Naomi. She's committing her life to Naomi, body and soul, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And in so doing, Ruth is committing her life to Naomi's God, whom she calls as a witness here, by the way, by his personal name, Yahweh, a Moabite woman using the name of God. One of the most important ideas in the whole Bible is laid out here. I want to close by telling you a little bit about it. It's encapsulated in one Hebrew word. I don't usually use words from the original language, but this one's important. It's called hesed. Hesed is the word, and it's translated something like covenant faithfulness, pledged loyalty and love. That's what Ruth is doing. She's pledging faithfulness to her embittered mother-in-law forever. Not because Naomi is deserving or worthy or has a lot of coffee cups that say best mother-in-law ever or has won mother-in-law of the year awards. That's not the reason. It's not even because Naomi asked for it. Naomi asked for the exact opposite. She wants Ruth to leave. Ruth's doing this because she loves Naomi. She's doing this because she is demonstrating hesed. She's loyally steadfast in her love. And we don't see it yet, but we'll see it as we unfold the story. This is the only true answer. The only true answer to Naomi's bitterness and the only true answer to your bitterness. Amazingly, Naomi's initial response, verse 18, she said no more. Imagine that. Ruth gives like some of the best lines in all the Bible. I will die for you, Naomi. And Naomi's like, whatever. Let's get back to Bethlehem quickly so I can die. Naomi's not receptive at all. She replies to one of the most moving speeches in the Bible with the silent treatment. Now, that tells us something about her heart. But over time, as we'll see, the hesed of Ruth and of Boaz and ultimately of God win Naomi back. Hesed turns her heart back to the love of her father. And listen, listen, it's the same with you. It's the same with you. What is Christianity? What is Advent? What is the good news? The good news is that Jesus has said to us, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are going to be my people. And my God is going to be your God. Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi changes Naomi over time. And it points us to 
the greater truth of God's grace. That God's faithfulness to us will change us over time. God, in Jesus, is gracious to broken and bitter people. Jesus pledges himself to us, even in our bitterness. When we run from Jesus, he is still faithful. When we blame him, he's still faithful. When we break our vows, he keeps his. Jesus is the greater, and Jesus is the final Ruth. Jesus, Ruth's great, 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 etc., 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 grandson, is the one who shows permanent hesed, permanent faithfulness. Jesus was faithful to you in his life. He was faithful to you in his death. He was faithful to you in his resurrection. And he will be forever faithful to you after he returns. That's what Advent is about. We wait. We wait. And instead of waiting in bitterness, we can wait in hope. Because Jesus is, Jesus is hesed to us. He is lovingly faithful to us. He is gracious to us. And the point is that embracing that reality... Embracing the reality that God has pledged himself to us faithfully forever in Jesus will remove and be the only thing that can remove the root of bitterness and will cause in its place uh, an eruption of joy. That's the message of Ruth. That's the message of Advent. That Jesus in his grace is faithful to people who are embittered against God. So much so that he turns our weeping into joy. One of my good friends in my uh, pastoral cohort sent me a Christmas card that he got last year from some friends of theirs, and I had never read a Christmas card like it. I'm going to read you what this Christmas card said as a conclusion this morning. Listen to what they said on their card. Christmas card from the Mayfield family. Merry Christmas from the Mayfields. This was our hardest year ever. Merry Christmas. And we still haven't recovered. We left our mission organization. I experienced a traumatic pregnancy and birth and nearly died. Our baby was born a month early and had to be hospitalized for several scary days when he was six weeks old. We moved across the country and said goodbye to amazing friends. We put our daughter through a heck of a lot of transition. Our van broke down for good. Our upstairs neighbor drove his car into my daughter's bedroom. My anxiety got so bad that my body decided to get depressed to fix things. We became very isolated, partly on purpose. It was the year of hard things. But perhaps the most significant thing is that Jesus is no longer an abstract person, a walking theology, a list of do's and don'ts for me. This is the year I recognized Jesus as my battered, bruised brother. And I see how he never once left my side. Every year I think, now this year, I finally get Advent. We don't have the energy to pretend we're okay, because we aren't really. But the light around us remains. We take our mercies as we get them, and we know one day all things will be made new. Let's pray.